0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Pakistanamy. My name is Uzair Yunus and this week we're going to go back to our series on the US-China rivalry and how that is reshaping, influencing foreign policy around the world. Uh, Today we've we've previously talked about East Asia, the broader context of this rivalry and we're going to talk about India and China today with Tanvi Madan who's been on the podcast before many of you already know her. Anvi is a senior fellow in the Project on International Order and Strategy and director of the India Project at the Brookings Institution. She's also written and is author of a must-read book on China and India called "Fateful Triangle, How China Shaped U.S.-India Relations During the Cold War. Um, so when I was thinking about, OK, we've gone to East Asia, now let's start making our way west, start with India, and then probably in the next few weeks, we'll do a couple of episodes on the Middle East and Africa and then make our way to Latin America. So Tanvi, thank you so much for taking out the time and, and joining us today once again on Pakistanomi.
1: Uh, thanks, Azhar. It's great to be back uh, on, the, on the podcast.
0: Tanvi, I want to begin with sort of understanding or situating where things lie today between India and China. Obviously, there is a big state visit coming up with Prime Minister Modi coming to Washington, and we'll get to that in, later on in the conversation as well. But there was the SEO meet in Goa, but now that SEO heads of state meeting is a virtual, it's not going to be held in, in person. So help us understand what is the current status of the India-China relationship, and what are some of the key facets of tension uh, in this relationship at this point in time?
1: You know, where I would start is that you have as a former Indian foreign secretary, also a China hand, was Indian ambassador to China, uh, Vijay Gokhale, um, now uh, a scholar uh, uh, amongst other things at at, at Carnegie India, he wrote in a piece that, you know, this is India and China are now in a state of armed coexistence. Um, I've heard uh, former Indian national security advisor, Shiv Shankar Menon say, Uh, something similar, Um, and this is a change from, so to give you the contrast, you could maybe have described this relationship five years or so ago as one of competitive engagement. There were aspects of cooperation, competition, potentially conflict, Uh, but I think since the uh, boundary crisis that started around this time, or just before kind of early May, late April, early May 2020, uh then continued with a with a, the first fatal clash at the india china border uh, in 45 years uh and continued through that summer and in many ways that border crisis remains unresolved and that's separate from the bo- you know the the broader border dispute so if you're looking at why india and china are in this uh, in this state of you know armed coexistence um ambassador gokhale has also called it the lowest point in India-China relations since the two countries fought a war in 1962. At the core of it is that tension over the uh, you know, the disputed border. It is the longest undem- uh, undemarcated boundary in the world. Uh, and so they're competing claims. And so I think that border dispute, and particularly as India sees it, a sense that in 2020, uh, China moved to change the status quo at the border Um, uh, unilaterally using force or the threat of the use of force and that this was in violation of border agreements that the two countries had signed, about five of them, uh, by which uh, India and China had agreed to manage the boundary dispute, maintain peace and tranquility as they put it officially at the border. And that managing of the border dispute, not necessarily resolving it, though there was kind of a potential to do that, that management of the border dispute was going to open up the relationship, uh, cooperative aspects of the relationship. And so you did see that for a number of years where India, China had become India's largest trading partner. They were cooperating uh, at the in uh, on kind of global governance issues, on climate change. They were taking kind of uh, collective stances on things like cyber governance, on trade. And the reason I mentioned that cooperative period is you now see the contrast where even the areas where you saw Uh, cooperation in the past, uh, economics, uh, global governance, you're now actually seeing tensions in the relationship. Um, So just kind of briefly to outline, set aside the border dispute. You know, people say, well, if this border crisis gets resolved, will India-China relations go back to being normal? And the answer is you can even, you know, uh, not just resolve the crisis, you can even resolve the border dispute tomorrow. And there will be all these other issues that, uh, problems that India sees in terms of its China relationship, um, you know, on the bilateral front, um, the kind of sharing of the Brahmaputra river borders, uh, there's the issue from China's perspective of Tibet and the presence of the Dalai the Lama and Tibetan refugees. Um, there's now economic friction, uh, even prior to the 2020 crisis or prior to COVID, Uh, you saw India be very concerned that this was essentially an asymmetric economic relationship, whether in trade, whether in investment, which was uh, minuscule. Uh, India's large trade deficit investment was not that high, but to the extent that there was, it was mostly Chinese investment into India. Uh, Not that much market access for Indian companies. So actually a lot of the similar complaints that the US had about China, the lack of reciprocity, you saw that in kind of economic ties. And then beyond the bilateral differences in the kind of India-China relationship, you saw India on the regional side, India having concerns with uh, longstanding concerns about China's close relationship with Pakistan. Uh, but more recently, about the last 20, 25, I'd say about 20 years, Indian concerns about China's uh, growing uh, economic engagement and then strategic and political influence in its other neighbors as well uh and not just in its uh you know kind of territorial neighborhood but maritime neighborhood as well, so as the p l a n starts coming into the Indian Ocean, concerns about whether China would follow the rules of the road there uh and what kind of was it actually using its influence in say a Sri Lanka to say to Sri Lanka, you know make choices that benefit China and actually uh make choices uh against Indian interests in some ways, so you saw regional differences and for china the kind of the difference was that it, it was concerned about india uh engaging with uh china's rivals whether that was with uh vietnam whether that was with the japan with australia and particularly with the us and then finally even on the global stage where you had seen india and china as i said cooperate uh, you saw you've seen now um uh, whether its differences over um you know uns- unsustainable debt for instance uh, or India complaining uh, or seeing it, it, China as the country that is essentially blocking India's membership of the Nuclear Suppliers Group of the UN Security Council, if that ever if reform was ever done there. So I think this essential view in India that on the global stage China is, has been trying to actually block India's rise or its membership in in organizations. So I think you you largely see a relationship today. That is much more characterized, that uh, you know, uh, uh, over kind of competition rather than that cooperative dimension. Uh, and particularly since 2020, I think you've seen India take a much more competitive posture uh, at the border in terms of bulk, uh, bolstering its military presence, redeploying in some cases troops even from Pakistan or in insurg- search counterinsurgency duties. Uh, you've seen India, uh, you know, double down on some of these economic restrictions that they've placed on. Uh, chinese activities in the country and not just in the economic or technology sectors but even in kind of social academic sort of exchange sectors uh, and then finally india really doubling down on its partnerships with like minded countries who want to balance um uh balance china like the us uh, like australia others japan uh both bilaterally and with the quad so i think and that in, in turn upsets china so i think you're seeing now a pretty uh, a pretty a relationship that is characterized more by friction uh than kind of that sense of uh, partnerships there was a little bit of an asia of the asians element about 20 years ago or 20, and now you really don't see those aspects in the india china relationship
0: one of the things you said that that was quite interesting in there right was this uh issue around debt obviously that in sri lanka was a big flashpoint today in pakistan it's a big flashpoint um, and across the Global South, there has been this issue about a debt overhang, and much of this has been China Chinese debt in the sense that China has been funding significant infrastructure projects around the world. Um, but India now, through the G20 and other mechanisms, even when during the spring meeting here in D.C. and where the World Bank and the IMF, there were conversations with the Secretary of uh, Treasury, Um, Janet Yellen about, you know, debt relief for countries and reforming the common policy framework, etc. How have you seen that evolve on the Indian side in terms of a diplomatic tool, right? And the reason why I ask this is because that to me stands out as a big shift, not only in terms of India's this friction that's out there that annoys China across the board, but the fact that Global South countries now are looking at India in terms of saying, OK, here is a country diplomatically that might be more of an ally in terms of getting us access to debt relief and reform in the Bretton Woods system, because now we're stuck with Chinese debt. How how have you seen that evolution play out? And what's your view on that?
1: So I think in some ways, I mean, the the specific Indian concern about this issue really came from uh, particularly in, I think in the in the, in, in India's own neighbourhood, I think Sri Lanka, Maldives. Uh, I think with Pakistan, it was more that it was broadening a relationship that earlier had been largely political and military, uh, you know, kind of uh, military. But you know, one of the reasons India never kind of formally endorsed uh, Belt and Road Initiative was because of the China Pakistan Economic Corridor. So I think there there was less this concern about debt. But broadly, I think that the, for India, the evolution comes in on the one hand saying look infrastructure development is a good thing india actually shared with china this sense as did a lot of the global south that you know the 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 kind of bank fund the kind of washington consensus uh, sort of didn't have a place for development projects that were necessary or came with conditionalities that the countries could meet but they came with their own strategy. Things attached or they weren't funding projects that were actually necessary or countries didn't have access to a particular kind of development financing. So they actually come, it comes from a place that has changed because earlier India, China had a common sense. In fact, we're seeking together uh, larger seats on kind of in global economic governance uh, organizations, saying we would represent these voices. Um, and so I think initially you. it's also why India is the second largest I think it still is the second largest shareholder of the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. Or together, you know, there's the new development bank that Brinks has. So there is, I think, this aspect where India and China do agree about the need for this financing more broadly. I think what India has actually been concerned about where the shift has come is uh, in how it sees, uh, particularly that you know a lot of this funding that China is engaging in is uh, for, and it's it's not grants, it's loans. It's not loans at good terms. Um, it's the lack of transparency, which is not the case about AIID funding, for example. Those uh, The terms are pretty transparent, it functions like a, a multilateral development bank. Um, so the concern about transparency in particular, the concern that India has about financial sustainability, and we're now seeing the impact of that in Sri Lanka pretty starkly. Um, and so I think there's the stability aspect of it that India is concerned about in its neighborhood. Uh, but there is, you know, beyond kind of the economic fallout. I think there is underlying, at least for India, in terms of that debt uh, sustainability conversation, uh, the fact that it, you know, it does it bring strategic and political influence for China? Uh, and the sense has been particularly, I think, the uh, the and even prote- potentially military in influence in terms of posture, ports, uh, access to uh, territory. And I think, you know, the Humboldtota. Uh, example is often cited uh, by many as, you know, kind of encapsulating that. Some will argue, you know, it's exaggerated, but nonetheless, it had the sense of seeming like this very real reflection reflection of the concerns that this wasn't just economic engagement. It was going to come with political, military, strategic influence. So I think in some ways, India's concerns about this debt sustain- sustainability is might be slightly different than some countries in the global South who are essentially worried about the sustainability argument. I don't think the, I think these many of these countries around the world uh, see now uh, India take, uh, leading these some of these discussions with France in some cases, but even in bringing it up at the G20 uh, as an opportunity. Uh, But I don't think this necessarily means they will side with India or that they will reject further Chinese financing. I think like India did in the cold war, they will remain non-aligned, but they will use India-China competition or U.S.-China competition to try to extract benefits, which will include uh, restructuring debt, uh, uh, you know, repayments and things like that. Where uh, they will see that they, you know, that, that they have in this opening, which they might not have had otherwise. Uh, and I think what India and other kind of debtors, or sorry, creditors, will try to see, but also other countries who are worried about this debt situation. They don't want to be in a situation but yes, they want to help these countries in the global south out, want to make sure that their economies don't collapse, particularly economies that have been under pressure following the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the fallout of that, but they don't want to see these countries' uh, economies collapse. They want to uh, see kind of financial sustainability, fiscal sustainability, but they don't want to create a moral hazard, right? That or essentially end up helping them repay China, but not uh, other creditors off. And so... I think there's this balance. So these countries are going to try to make sure that they uh, uh, they can they can actually buy space, not just with uh, India, the bank, others, but potentially use that then to also uh, try to create some space with China. So I think they will play one off against the other. But I think for India, the uh, they recognized kind of that you know bringing up along with the U.S. and the Trump administration started it, others have followed, which is it's a good way to highlight the downside of some of this uh kind of the, the Chinese loans the Chinese terms these are non-transparent projects it's a good way to make the case for alternatives um uh, but it's also they have to be wary of you don't want to create a situation where you're saying to these countries go ahead take all these loans let China get influence in your countries and we'll help sort out your problem if there is a problem at the end of the day so I think it's a it's a it's, it's going to be interesting to watch as we go into the G20 summit Uh, in india in september how they how they find this uh, strike this balance
0: yeah i think it's going to be fascinating and just to add to what you said right the other thing in my view has been that if you're a middle or small power in this emerging competitive environment and if you get your strategy right you can actually get the best of both worlds right you can really turbocharge your own developmental achievements um, on the back of playing all of these sides because they want you in your in, in in their camp And you don't have to be, you can get the best terms. And one of the things that so far, I think a fair criticism of even the United States has been that it's not putting as much sort of alternative dollars on the table for these infrastructure and economic development needs as the Chinese are. And and that leads to a question of, okay, are you really serious about meeting our needs or not? And I think that's where Washington, for example, has to up its game. Coming back to the, you know, that's a good segue into the the Washington side of this equation. Prime Minister Modi is coming to India for a state visit in three weeks' time. Um, A lot of conversations in Washington, as I'm sure you're aware about, the dynamics of that trip and the importance of that and the role of India in the Indo-Pacific, et cetera. How significant is this trip from your perspective? And what are some of the key areas in which you know, uh, key areas that this visit will help shape into the future. Right? We're hearing a lot about manufacturing of semiconductors and new and emerging technologies and uh, looking at supply chain resiliencies, et cetera, but also on the strategic side as well. So what do you think is going to be the key sort of uh, the, the key sort of top line achievements of this trip and what should people keep an eye out for?
1: So I think you know, as as with any state visit, a lot of the kind of the the significance is the symbolism, and sometimes you know that's a bit of a cliche and it's dismissed. But this is only the um, third state visit of the Biden administration. The first two were uh, France and uh, South Korea. Um, I think there was a uh, there was some reports, and I think the president might have said. That there will be one by Australia, so um, in in the in the future, and so this tells you in terms of how the significance is not just going kind to of, oh yes, it's a state visit, but the the category in which in which the US puts India um, as a kind of a, a, a not just a, a yet another partner, but and not an ally, obviously, but. Kind of a a, a significant strategic uh, partner who, with which it shares, uh, with which there is strategic convergence. Uh, not on everything, not total agreement, but alignment on some key issues, including including uh, China in many ways. Um, and so I think you you know you you see within that broader ambit, um, you know highlighting kind of the how far I suspect the U.S. India relations have come. I mean, one thing as we as we think about this visit is. There's often when we're thinking about how do you measure this relationship, there is a tendency, it's natural to some extent uh, here in the U.S. that, you know, we compare it to allies. India is not an ally. So how do you compare it? But India is not going because it's not an ally. It's hard to compare it to what Australia does or what Japan will do, the U.K. and others. To me, the metric that I often use is uh, how much it's changed over time, because India and the U.S. in some ways, you know, it's a unique uh, relationship of two countries that essentially see themselves as exceptional and therefore the relationship has almost followed an exceptional track um and so for me i look back and 25 years ago is when the u.s imposed sanctions on india uh, because of the nuclear tests uh uh in pakistan as well of course but you know if you look at where we are today where you know the issues you talked about will be featured uh things like close a part of this initiative on critical and emerging technologies that uh, the two national security councils are helping lead is about advanced technology, commercial and defense, uh, and actually comes at the very issues that those sanctions uh, imposed uh, uh, Dutch, which is things like export controls, technology collaboration, tech transfer, knowledge transfer. And so I think what you're going to see along with the, you know, along with the significance of a state visit itself, only the third of also for an Indian prime minister, um, you're going to see some pretty specific emphasis on this whole dimension of the technology area, innovation and technology more broadly. uh, I think you will see uh, an emphasis on talking about regional security discussions and the work that the two countries are doing in the Indo-Pacific in terms of uh, peace and stability in, in the area. You know, China might not be mentioned by name, but it's underlying that you know these. This is a partnership, in part, uh, to provide alternatives, to ensure rules based order, to be a balanced, You know, shape a favorable balance power as a rising China takes certain actions that both countries uh, don't see. So, I think you will see kind of this. You know, this regional security dimension that will be highlighted. Some of the even on you know the global security side, I think you will see. Uh, some, you know, these things is, is there, you know, are called action forcing events, where when these visits happen, you need to give deliverables, another very D.C. term. Uh, and so I think you'll see some of these in, in
0: a way, if I may interrupt you, it also adds a bit of urgency on the bureaucratic side in South Asian bureaucracies to get stuff done that otherwise would not happen because of the symbolism. Right. That's where symbolism matters. You need the long list of achievements that your prime minister or president can talk about.
1: Yeah. And, you know, in this case, as as most folks will hear, will say it's, you know, it's it's two bureaucracies, both not just the Indian bureaucracy, but the U.S. bureaucracy that isn't necessarily used to dealing with uh, this kind of country uh, or ha- hasn't been for, for decades. So I think, you know, um, there have been some reports that they're trying to get this uh, uh, this kind of offer from General Electric to to kind of co-produce uh, an engine in India. Uh, that would be pretty significant, partly because um, this has been kind of the holy grail of US-India, this kind of uh, an engine for a fighter. They've been talking about it since the 50s or 60s. So it's been an aspiration. Which again, for
0: the audience, people think, you know, it's engine as an engine. No, engines are not just engines, especially jet engines are very sophisticated, very complex. And there's a lot of controls of the technology and the knowledge as you were alluding to. And to this day, um, even though China's caught up on the manufacturing side, GE jet engines are considered the best in class in the world. And they're very sophisticated and protected technologies underlying those. So that's it's a big deal if that does move forward.
1: Yeah. And I mean, as you said, you know, there's so few countries who do this. The, I mean the China-Pakistan uh, uh joint fighter, for example, has a Russian engine. Um, and so for the reason that, you know, even China hasn't kind of quite mastered the art as much as it's done. A lot in terms of military uh, modernization and advanced technology. Um, so I think you know you'll see kind of I think this underlying technology innovation theme, uh, clean energy, uh, clean tech, I think will be another another area um, that you will uh, will see. and and I think underlying this will be this idea that this is about economic security, it's about national security because you'll see a lot of talk around resilience, I suspect. Uh, And, you know, some of the themes of this came up in the Quad uh, Leaders uh, Summit and the documents out to that as well. You'll see it in terms of uh, uh, kind of some of the maritime security discussions. But underlying all these, I think, is, you know, where this is also different from, say, even kind of India-Russia ties, which are nowhere in the league these days in terms of breadth that India-US relations are, is what partly what makes us different is the kind of people-to-people dimensions, whether that's students, whether that is, you know, scientists, whether that's CEOs these days. Uh, and so I think that diaspora element by the very nature of the kind of relationship will also feature um, significantly. And I think, you know, the um, uh, these are state visits are always kind of moments to take stock. And so I think you'll see a lot of analysis. We've already seen some about you know, where do U.S.-India relations stand? I think the administration here and the Indian government will be making a case uh, for the future. But, you know, there are, as you know, questions about what expectations the two countries can have of each other and whether they can deliver on them.
0: Uh, a quick note on that, you mentioned the diaspora, right? And it's something that I've seen, at least uh, It it's stood out to me over the last few months with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, not just on the Indian side, but even on the Pakistani and Bangladeshi side across South Asia. Was this in the broader dynamics of the public diplomacy side or the people's conversation, right? Whether it is folks in the diaspora here, at least that was my experience, or you look at survey data or the conversation on social media in India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, etc. Is this latent anti-Americanism that comes out? And we saw that when, when Russia invaded Ukraine and there was a big conversation on, you know, whether America is even a friend or not. Russia is so much important, et cetera. How much of an impact do you think those sentiments play on a relationship like that, a relationship that is by all means on an upward trajectory? And, and as you said, it's much more the breadth of it is much more significant than Russia. Um, what does that discourse do to this relationship? Do you think it has any impact at all, or it's just noise that policymakers tend to ignore and get past?
1: So I think it is, you know, there's a bit of both in the sense that I do think what you've seen, particularly in the India-US case, is they have recognized that there's a difference on Russia, uh, and they have worked very hard actually for years, but particularly uh, in the since the Russian invasion to manage that difference, because they see a larger strategic convergence, and not just over, you know, shared concerns about China, but economic ties, technology ties, these people to people ties as well. So I think there's kind of a an interest in a mutually beneficial aspect of the relationship that both sides see, uh, though often, you know, the each one says the other side is getting more out of it. But nonetheless, I think the governments have um, soldiered on. Um, and so you can say that, look, there's this public discussion, but nonetheless, they um, um, the governments can ignore it. Having said that, I think it is important uh, in democracies to take the publics along. On the one hand, I also wonder how much of this is noise, because yes, you see, uh, you know, sometimes, uh, especially uh, on social media, you know, the loveless voices are often the ones who are kind of the most uh, skeptical, Uh, It's a different matter that most of their children study in the U.S. and not Russia. Uh, But that's besides the point. I think where you see, uh, if you look at even kind of the Indian discussion about the Russian invasion, if you look at the uh, not just English editorials, if you saw regional newspapers, if you saw even some kind of TV um, coverage, it was actually critical of the Russian invasion. Some of it was what in the world is Russia doing to itself? Um, but I, I do think where this you're you're very right about at best um, skepticism of the U.S. at worst anti-Americanism come out um, where a large litany of things, some of which it's not about the U.S. It's often about kind of Europe or you know kind of imperial imperialism, which gets put on to the U.S. or saying look the U.S. is being hypocritical about it. All these things come out, and um, some of it is. I actually think one of the things that ended up fueling that uh, was the fact that the US and Europe went into with us or against us mode in the beginning. And the way I think about it is in the West, we made it, we made the Russian invasion, somehow ended up with the global South, making the Russian invasion about us and not what Russia did by going to these countries and saying, you're being immoral because you are not seeing things the way we are. Uh, And so I I don't think that was the best way to approach countries that disagree or don't have the same opinion. That to me is what led to some of the skepticism. Let's also be clear, China and Russia are actively uh, fueling this as well, but underlying that there is this kind of sense. Um, So to me, this exists in the Indian strategic community, some of it for very real reasons. Uh, There is the sense of the US in the past Uh, being unreliable, sanctioning India, as I said, that was just, you know, a couple of decades ago. Um, But I think the governments are trying to get beyond that. And if you look at public polling in India, despite all this kind of these uh, voices in the strategic community and sometimes within government as well, where it does shape debates, including who you buy your weapons from, you still hear this in in India. Oh, you know, the French will be more reliable. They're not going to sanction us. So that is still there. That's uh, that's the U Indi- the U S skepticism that I think should be of more concern and will have more impact. But I think in the strategic community, some of it is the fact that it does help shape public debate. I think what in the U S uh, needs to be done is not add to that, uh, not add to the add fuel to that, uh, but find ways of dealing with and talking to a, a broader public. The Indian public itself, uh, to me, I think is not as uh, US skeptic as you, you know, social media uh, would would uh, would reflect. Uh, and you see this in polling. You see this in some polling that's been done in India. Polling is always a bit iffy, but uh, I think you largely see it uh, in terms of how people engage, uh, where they're sending their kids to study, you know, where they actually want to come. Why are the visas lines in India so long? Not just because there are not enough visa officers, because the demand is is very, very high. So I think the skepticism is there. I think to some extent, it's natural from two countries that whose re-engagement is quite recent. Um, but I do think it is something that should not be ignored. Uh, and I think so the US needs to do its part by not going into this with us or against us mode. I think the Indian government needs to do its part by not fueling this foreign hand issue that you know, this anti-Western um, thing where uh, they're saying that you know the West is somehow out, out to kind of, keep India down, which is really not the case. And you see this both in the state visit uh, and, you know, even President Macron in France kind of uh, hosting Prime Minister Modi. So I think, I I don't think public should be ignored in democracies because I think they need to be taken along. I think Prime Minister Modi, who does think about public opinion a lot, the fact that he has taken certain moves with the US that previous folks had said were red lines, I think he recognizes the Indian public isn't as anti-American as as uh, people some people would assume.
0: Yeah, I think I, I I agree with you on the the moral terms in which the invasion was was framed was you know a bit rich for a country that a couple of decades ago invaded Iraq on on dubious uh, and and you know flat out lies basically right. And There's no other way to describe what happened over there. So that rubbed the global south the wrong way. Um, rubbed me the wrong way at a personal level, I, I must say. But then uh, the other point on the Indian side, in terms of you know uh, leaders playing into that, right? I think it was uh, Piyush Goyal who described Amazon as the new reincarnation of a new East India Company, and I don't think anyone would appreciate the, you know framing Amazon as, as the East India Company coming back uh, to to extract wealth out of India, and and that doesn't certainly doesn't help the view of corporate America when it comes to when it comes to india as well
1: no and and you know you see the change now where uh, minister goel is helping lead efforts uh, as india participates in ipf the indo pacific economic framework and so i think you also start recognizing over time especially as challenges appear uh, like china which for india is a political economic technological even ideological challenge uh, that you then you know, the whole world can't be, you can't can't kind of dismiss the whole world. And so you do need to find like-minded friends and partners. And you've seen the change, even even from folks who had earlier said, look, we don't want these uh, companies. I think the bigger debate in India, as we think about, you know, to me, there's not really that much of a debate on China anymore in India. To me, so so when people say, where is India going to stand in US-China competition? And people take the... So, you know, they call the war model and say India is going to be non-aligned. It's going to walk a middle path. And I don't think that's the case because not because of anything for the U.S. It's because India's own uh, challenges with China. So I don't think it's non-aligned when it comes to China. I don't think there's that much of a debate. I think where the debate in India, whether it's to, to do with the U.S. or other international partners, is fundamentally on openness, on how much to engage geopolitically, economically, technologically with the world. So in the U.S. case, you know, how do you treat an Amazon? Uh, You know, how open do you want to be to an Amazon? Um, What does self-reliance mean? Does it mean self-sufficiency or does it mean diversification, right? Uh, Does it mean resilience? And those two things result in a very different pathway you take in terms of how far and fast do you deepen ties with a country like the U.S.? So to me, if you're looking at just the U.S., the big debate is, uh, how far and fast should this relationship partnership go not should there be a relationship with the US um, but also more broadly how open should India be uh, to the world
0: if we look east now in terms of India's strategy right Prime Minister Modi was just in Australia as well you talked about sort of you know the United States having state visits on the South Korean side etc and and India has made a big effort to engage, starting with, you know, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe and Prime Minister Modi getting along really closely and, you know, having this bond and and Japan playing a key role even now in terms of trying to, you know, get the global south to be on the western side of the Russian invasion even at this point. Australia, obviously, i mentioned their South Korea, Vietnam outreach as well. How do you assess India's eastern strategy in terms of foreign policy and looking at like-minded countries or some that may not be fully as like-minded but have a shared concern over a rising China or a more bullying China, so to speak. Um, What do you think India is getting right and what do you think it needs to do a bit more of on the Eastern side to keep East Asia on its side as well in terms of this emerging rivalry with China?
1: So I think India has... um you know, it's part of this kind of broader Act East policy uh, that India has followed. But I think it's been uh, both in terms of momentum um, as well as uh, uh, just breath uh, changed over time. And some of this is because of India. Some of this is because other partners have become more desirous of engaging with India as well for different reasons. Um, So what you've seen is India with uh, all the countries you mentioned, uh, really kind of whether and you you can think about it as in concentric circles. So, you know, India's neighborhood first, but then it's kind of Act East, which is Southeast Asia, and then these kind of East Asian uh, slash oceanic partners. And then, you know, the US fits into that as well. And I think, and there's also the Middle East dimension these days, which doesn't get much attention, but India thinks about China in in, in kind of that part of the world, as India calls it, West Asia, as well because it there's is a well. whole
0: infrastructure push right now on the Middle East side exactly. with, you know the port and Haifa and other uh opportunities coming up which also the Saudis and the Emiratis and the Egyptians are very much interested in as well because they also want to counterbalance uh, and have some diversification in terms of their relationships over there
1: absolutely and so I think the what you're seeing is an in India that says, Uh, you know, we need to engage in Southeast Asia for different reasons. The initial push for India, especially with ASEAN countries was economic. It wasn't necessarily strategic, though it had ties, but you're now seeing India in, you know, the last couple of decades also, and particularly the last decade and a half, I think, think about these, the kind of, um, the uh, defense, the technology dimensions as well. So particularly Singapore, Vietnam, uh, have been, uh, uh, and Indonesia have been uh, uh, countries that India has engaged with. Now you're seeing India even, for example, um, you know, striking a deal to sell the Brahmos uh, missiles that were co-developed and co-produced with the Russians to uh, the Philippines, which wasn't a country that India traditionally engaged with uh, on the defense side that much. It was partly seen because it was seen as an American ally. Um, but this is India developing these uh, kind of independent, diplomatic, defense, economic, even the Modi government, where it's kind of quite a distinct is drawing on cultural links with these countries as well, whether Buddhist or Hindu or, or kind of historic more, more generally. And I think you're then seeing it also, though, fundamentally goes back to that economic dimension that you know essentially India lives in a broader Asia that yes, there is the regional balance point of view, uh, that it needs to work with countries to shape a favorable balance of power, to deter China. But it's also an economic dimension that India has believed that this part of the world is crucial uh, and this extended world. So going out from Southeast Asia, right to the kind of, uh, you know, Western shores of the US as as, as Prime Minister Modi has defined the Indo-Pacific uh, to, the, to, to, to India's East is to really kind of see this as the economic uh, driver for India. Uh, and the, uh, for its economic transformation and so for its technological transformation as well. So I think there has been this aspect of uh, yes, independently, this these these areas are these partners are important for India. But I think there is an element to balance China to provide alternatives to work with partners. I think another dimension has been particularly you, know, you, you, you mentioned uh, uh, South Korea, Australia, and uh, Japan. These are countries that India also has now uh, defense relationships with in, in with the case of South Korea, even defense industrial cooperation with. And I think the some of that has been uh, what you talked about earlier, which is skepticism of the US. I, I'd say that you know, India is not hedging between the US and China, but it does hedge against uncertainty about the US. Uh, and so it does that in two ways, by building its own capabilities so it doesn't need an external partner. Uh, But some of it is uh, um, uh, or doesn't get over-dependent on any country, uh, particularly the U.S. So how do you hedge against uh, uncertainty about uh, the U.S. or over-dependence of the U.S.? You indigenize and you diversify. So you make sure you have these other partnerships. Uh, Some of this also came from uh, the Trump years, where not just India, but in Australia and Japan, suddenly everybody was looking around and saying, can we depend on the U.S. being here? And we cannot wait but the US to you know come up with these initiatives. The Quad, for example, the Japanese initiative, it gets revived as Japan, Australia, and India are actually concerned about the US commitment to the region uh, and whether that will come through. So I think for India, as it thinks about this region, its Eastern strategy, it is really about building these partnerships, building space for itself, building a favorable, uh, uh, a favorable region, ensuring a multipolar Asia, as India puts it, as opposed to the part that gets unsaid, India's belief that China wants a unipolar Asia. Where could India do better? I think delivery, uh, and that's connected to the capacity issue, which is at the end of the day, uh, India's capability and capacity constraints are somewhat. It's not the intention. India wants to do more, so I think the direction is right. The delivery is is where you you kind of need it has to be faster, uh, it has to be uh, more frequent, um, it has to be you know showing up in the region, which I think India is doing a better job of, but. Some of this is, you know, when you when you have capability and capacity constraints, you've got a lot of demands on your time and resources, bandwidth, uh, and sometimes I think that is actually it's not the intentions part; it's more kind of delivery. And for that, there's no substitute to economic growth uh, and development because that's what's going to power everything else, including in terms of building up bureaucratic infrastructure, being able to provide uh, export credit or loans. Uh, or even grants—that's the kind of thing that you just need uh, raw economic power to be able to fuel that, as China has shown us. Uh,
0: you you kind of preempted my question in terms of where India should improve, so I'll, I'll ask a different question or uh, similar to that. To that note, is that if you were to sort of look at six to twelve months into the future, um, what would be some things that you would keep an eye out on in terms of reassessing where this? competition is going and where India is fitting into this competition, right? And again, this could be, uh, you know, my view is it could be things that slow down the way in which India competes with China effectively, or things that, you know, breakthroughs on the India-China side that sort of make it rethink some of the choices it's making, particularly with regards to the US. So what would you be keeping an eye out on and what should the audience keep an eye out on in the next six to 12 months? To continue monitoring where India's China policy is going in the future?
1: So, I think the, the topmost thing one has to say is the border. Uh, and does the uh, border crisis get stabilized? Or, you know, it hasn't, I think you mentioned the potential stabilizing, but what if it escalates? Um, what is that, you know, a, a Xi Jinping that gets up and decides, you know what? India has been talking a big game. I want to try and teach it a lesson, put it in its place, grab a little bit more territory, salami slice a little bit more, and particularly in an election year for Prime Minister Modi. Uh, And I'm not going to do it even before, you know, the G20 so that um, it could be different. Uh, And the stakes, you know, you could have people around Xi Jinping telling him, oh, you know, India doesn't have an alliance. It doesn't have a security commitment. It might be the easier way to actually make a Show that you're strong on national security. Now, I'm not saying any of this will come to fruition or that these assumptions are right, but China has been wrong about made wrong assessments and assumptions about India before and could do could do that again. Um, but I'm just saying so the border uh does um does something flare up? It could be accidental as well. And I think that would have uh, uh ramifications. Um, I'm less Uh, You know, there could be a stabilization, but I'm less convinced that that will lead to some big reset. Uh, And the reason for that is the border boundary agreements that I mentioned. If you're in India that thinks that China violated uh, boundary agreements, how will you ever trust again that it will not do so again? Plus, as I said, even if the border gets stabilized, all these other issues uh, and the trend so far we've seen is not a China that's backing down that is building up including in terms of its military posture uh in uh in uh, uh you know on the kind of opposite side of both Ladakh uh, and Arunachal Pradesh um so i, I to me the, the the key thing i would watch in india china is is the border second thing is uh you know you mentioned some of the semiconductor manufacturing etc to me the second thing i'm i'm going to be watching is trends in india is trying to build its uh, economic resilience and reduce it, its uh, economic and technological exposure to China. Uh, I want to see how much, what the trends, do those trends continue? We've seen India-China trade numbers go up in a volume. But one of the interesting things is you start to scratch under the, so, you know, scratch those numbers a bit further and look that next level of depth is uh, at least, you know, four months ago when I looked at this, India-China trade had, gone up Indian imports from China had gone up. And so people often point to that and say, this is not uh, uh, de-risking or decoupling. But if you actually looked at it, it was something like India's uh, exports or uh, imports from the world had gone up 50%. India's imports from US had gone up you know, 30, 40 something percent. And India's imports from China had only gone up 33%. So yes, there was growth, but it was much below the global average for India. And so to me, I'm watching those trends uh, because if India is successful, including it, not just diversifying itself, but attracting companies like Apple and others who are trying to diversify, I then think you see a very different technological and economic future for India that is actually more aligned uh, with uh, uh, with the, uh, the West uh, other than um, other than. Uh, third thing, which might not seem uh, like a China thing, but is uh, and would be for India, is the China-Russia relationship. Uh, I would particularly see over the next 6 to 12 months the China-Russia dynamics at the G20 summit, particularly if both Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin go uh, in September for the summit in Delhi. And uh, you know uh, do they align with each other in terms of blocking something like a joint statement? Or are there other steps in the China-Russia relationship where which really spark concerns in, in India about uh, its own relationships uh, and what Russia might do in an india china crisis um another dimension i would say is um uh, that i would watch and maybe you didn't need want so many things but i just mentioned a couple of others well, keep i it going. i, I, I would uh, mention its an election year in india as as you know uh, early, so at least it, we're in that phase where we're within a year of an indian election um how does this play in um, how does china the china factor play in, in an election in which, if anything, you know, the opposition has been criticizing the government for being not strong enough in China. Uh, And so, you know, whether there's a border crisis or not, how does that play? And what does that do to the Indian government's space? Uh, And then finally, the thing I think I would watch is not just other contingencies in terms of how India would react to a crisis of some sort in the Western Pacific or the South China Sea, but more broadly, uh what are what are where are the spaces in terms of as India seeks to balance China with other partners? Um you know people will often say India won't do this with the u s in the defense and security terms. And then two years later, we see India actually doing something like that. So where are the, where what are those things going to be? what are they are we going to see limits that India will say that I can't do with you on China? or are we going to continue to see in the six to twelve months India continue to say, "Look, I am, if this is in my kind of strategic interest to do it, these things that were seen as taboos, uh, I'm actually gonna going to going to actually make them more inhibition see them as inhibitions and kind of get over them uh, and do things with whether it's Australia, whether it's Japan, whether it's France, whether it is the UK or the US, or in, in terms of the quad.
0: I think that last point is so important, right? And I'll go back to something you said earlier, which is A lot of people, analysts apply the old Cold War framework and and work off of that being the anchor, right? And if you have the old Cold War framework as the anchor, then what are considered taboos today will never get violated, so to speak, because that holds true. But in in a new framework where there is convergence, and I would add to your point, there's convergence not only with the United States, but with China, Australia and South Korea, the diversifying partners for the Indians, if they're also aligned on that, then it's that much easier to get over that old taboo and say, you know what, it's a brave new world. And we're going to do things that 20 years ago were not seem possible for us because it's different now. And I think a lot of people that look at what decisions India may or may not make continue to apply that old framework and are unwilling to loosen it up a bit. Uh, to understand that there is a different set of choices being made at this point in time primarily because the strategies you know not applicable anymore from the cold war so i fully agree with you on that um, and, and before I let you go, A, this has been fascinating as always, always a pleasure talking to you, Tanvi, both on the podcast and in person whenever we meet in Washington. Um, but before I let you go, I see there's a library behind you. And, you know, I always ask my guests this question. So what are two or three books you would recommend to the audience?
1: I'm always glad you asked this question because I learn a lot from listening to uh, your kind of folks who are on the podcast, uh, who their recommendations. And I often read those books. So I'm glad you asked it. Um, I'm going to suggest, because uh, I've been on before, so the standard things that I usually uh, recommend, I won't. Um, I will recommend a few books uh, of of um, uh, India, China watchers in India, uh, who, uh, so on kind of the India-China relationship, two uh, who are officials, two who have been journalists and who have written books. Uh, one is uh, Ambassador Shamsaran, who was former foreign secretary, also a China hand, Um Uh, and and as Foreign Secretary used to engage on uh, as a special representative in the India-China talks, uh, written about how China sees India. Uh, And uh, this is kind of, I think, his latest book. Uh, Relatedly, a little different angle, but um, Ambassador Vijay Gokhale, who had mentioned earlier, has written The Long Game on how uh, China negotiates with India. And I think these two are also important because, you know, yes, there's strategic convergence that India has, with Japan, with the the u s with Australia and China, but you also see there are certain places that there are differences and and so I think in in these books you'll you'll see partly how these india how India's China hands have seen uh, china in in different uh, ways uh, or in similar ways to those those views in the West, and also how. Um, um, where the differences have been uh, in, in terms of uh, their views uh, and perceptions vis-a-vis uh, China, that uh, from 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 kind of um, other partners. So I think those two books from officials. I think the the two journalists is one is Pallavi Ayer, uh, who's written a book called Smoke and Mirrors, and and she was based in China, and so you know it's about kind of perceptions as much uh, and and her experience there. And then um, Anand Krishnan's. Uh, uh, India's uh, China challenge. Um, and uh, he's he's been there more recently uh, than um, uh, than uh, Pallavi, but uh, I think both their books also show you the change over time. Um, it's looking at it from kind of a a journalist, but also analytical point, uh, point of view, uh, this India-China relationship. And Anant, uh, as some of your listeners might know, was in China till very recently, and then is one of the uh, excellent journalists, Indian journalists there uh been there a long time and his book will show to those readers who who read it uh just his expertise on it he's a mandarin speaker as well uh he's sadly one of the journalists uh whose visas uh, have not been or he has not been allowed back into into china so i think it'll be a actually a loss for not just india but china as well because i think he's he's very good at at explaining china to, to an indian audience
0: Yeah, I think it's a shame that I I read that story and for the audience who may not have caught up to it, um, they may want to take a look at that story on the visa issue. And it's a shame, I think, when countries cut off visas to journalists, members of civil society businesses, then. Sorry, it was on my end. So what happened today was we had a contractor hit a cable on our alley and we've had some issues, but I got you towards the end and what I would. Pause for three seconds and then conclude if that's okay.
1: Sure. Um, do you want me to? Uh, I got. I got to... all of the
0: books. Okay, I got great. all of them. Yeah. So Tanvi, thanks for those book recommendations. And and I was going to say your books on on the journalist parts. And for those on the in the audience who haven't caught up with the issue around visas, as you were alluding to, um, they should read it. And for me, it's a shame. I think when countries cut off visa access to journalists, members of civil society, cultural icons, etc. You just lose that connectivity and that ability to engage with and understand another country. Um, And India and China are two big countries. And when you cut off access to journalists, you just make it that much, much easier, I think, to get into an escalatory fight that perhaps may not have happened had there been more connect and and human connectivity, right? So uh, hopefully that gets resolved. But thank you for your time. Uh, Thank you for the book recommendations. And always a pleasure having you on the podcast.
1: Thanks, Isair.